In the South, it's always college football season. And the king of college football reigns supreme all year long. Now more college football talk with the king of college football. It's the Chuck Oliver Show on Southern Sports Today. Chuck Oliver Show continuing on this Monday. Big first hour, guest-wise. Rusty Mansell came on, talked about Saturday's SEC championship game from the Georgia end of things. Then we had Drew DeArmond from 97.7 ESPN Huntsville give the Alabama take. Uh, we will talk a little University of Michigan uh, football. And then bottom of the hour, Cincinnati Bearcats. Um, it's more than Desmond Ritter and Jerome Ford. Uh, it's more than that. It's a really well-coached team with a tough defense and – uh, they're not necessarily going to give you a lot of chances on their own. Um, you've got to go out there and make plays and beat them, and they kind of play that. It's a little bit of a baseline sort of game. Uh, and so we will catch up on Cincinnati. Bottom of the hour right now, let me get you up to date. Everything you need to know about college football every single day. This is CFB 365. All right, there's so much going on right now as far as transfers and who's coming back. Uh, BC's getting their quarterback. Uh, Yerkovic's coming back for 22. Uh, but there is, there are two stories from the weekend, one that we talked about, and I thought this could have happened last Wednesday, that Florida in – was that the Big 12 SEC basketball challenge? The And so Florida's playing Oklahoma, and there was a chance they were going to introduce Venables that night. They wait until a traditional day. The day after, the morning after Championship Saturday, the day all the bids are given out, that's when a lot of coach, like premier positions get filled because you're going to have a premier candidate. Well, who do those guys coach for? A lot of times, teams that are playing on Championship Saturday. So you can wait a week or two. You don't want to then wait a full month. So you name your coach. Well, Oklahoma has named Brent Venables as a stew coach. Again, there was a chance that would have happened last week, but they went ahead and waited. Um... And when I talk about Dabo, like Dabo's Dabo's offseason already being a challenge, if he loses his offensive – see, he's already lost a defensive coordinator. He's going to be head coach at Oklahoma. He was at Clemson for, I think, a dozen seasons. Wow. So, if he he's already lost his defensive coordinator, he might lose his OC. I don't know, Virginia, Duke. I think he's losing his athletic director. You know what you're choosing? Aren't, aren't you choo- If you go from being at, not living in Clemson to living in South Beach, Dan, if you go from working in Clemson, South Carolina, to working in Coral Gables, you're choosing lifestyle, aren't you? It's not ability to win. Oh, very much. I mean, the Caddyshack-style golf courses are down there, all that stuff. So, yeah, you're... You're not choosing – again, if it happens, and I don't know that D-Rad's leaving. I don't know that, Dan. Make sure he hadn't left yet. I don't know that D-Rad's leaving. But if Dan Radakovich decides to go from – you talk about trading up, man. Not from – because Clemson's athletic department, win, 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 and all kinds of sports. I get to live in Miami. I love man. There's people listening right now. I've been to Miami. Why would you want to live there? Well, among other things, and I'll just throw this out. There's no state income tax. I don't know what South Carolina charges, um, but no state income tax. Plus, all kinds of other breaks on like non-prepared food and whatever else. But that's not the. He'll be making bank regardless. Live in South Florida. It's better than living inland in South Carolina. And I've lived inland and in South. It's just better. So if he leaves. 
and Venable's already gone. And his OC may leave as well. Uh, there's your story. Uh, oh, and Mario Cristobal may leave for Miami with D-Rad. Manny Diaz, it wasn't a great season, and it's not perfect. You found a whole lot of dissatisfaction with a guy at 7-5. and five. If you will look at the money involved... You have found a lot of dissatisfaction with Manny Diaz where I don't think it's nearly that much. Paying him off, his assistance, to help Mario Cristobal get away from Oregon, you're talking over $20 million. Replace guy went 7-5. Again, it's not perfect. And you had an opportunity for it to be much better. And you didn't cash in on it, but uh, uh, this is th- this is exactly what Lincoln Riley was talking about with Gary Patterson. Uh, this is a different sort of time in college athletics. Uh, again, Manny Diaz now out. They fired him after three years being head coach, trying to get Mario Cristobal going from one former player to another former player. All right, we're going to take a break. We will come back. Continue with the Chuck Oliver Show next. to Southern Sports Today and the Chuck Oliver Show. All week, all year, it's all college football on the Chuck Oliver Show. Nine states, 55 sticks. Been doing this since the beginning of the 14th season, so I appreciate everybody making that blessing possible. I told you on Friday that if you are expecting a college football cliche to play out, Saturday night in the Big Ten championship game. It's not going to go, Iowa in the great offensive line. And no, that's not what it was going to be. Now, I didn't expect that. Um, I thought that they would compete a little bit more. But that was not a classic Iowa team where they're just going to, you know, five Redwoods and they just want to mash you up front. Um, But it also was not a typical Michigan team. And I don't mean talent-wise. I mean, they've got NFL guys all over that defense, uh, especially, uh, including maybe the best pass rusher in college football, including maybe the best pass rushing twosome in college football. And so that's not nothing. But talent has never been an issue in Ann Arbor. And th- and this team, as talented as it is, it's different. It's 12-1 and conference championship. I'm going to the playoffs sort of different. I want to welcome on right now a guy who does a great job covering Michigan, Michigan State, Big Ten for the Detroit Free Press. It is Rainer Saban. Rainer, welcome, brother. How you doing today? Good. How you doing? Doing all right. So why is this year's Michigan team different? Why isn't it just 10-2 and two really good versus 12-1 and one playoffs potentially great? Well, I think, you know, they, they kind of went back to – well, Jim Harbaugh kind of went back to what made him a successful coach. I mean, they're – foundation of their offense is obviously it's a running game and then they've uh, also protected the football really well and given their defense the best chance to succeed um they also obviously in the off season uh uh hired a new defensive coordinator who diversified the scheme i mean the previous defensive coordinator don brown was very much a a man coverage uh centric defense with a lot of blitzing this guy they 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 also do a lot of blitzing but um the coverage principles are mix of zone man pattern match and uh it's just a lot more um diversity from that standpoint 
and uh, you know he kind of changes the game plan from week to week and uh, so he it, it is a combination of factors certainly um, between uh, Harbaugh changing up the staff he hired six new assistants and kind of improving the culture within the within the program but more buy-in from the players the players also seem to take some more ownership of the the team and then you combine that with some of the strategic elements that they've implemented and it's been uh it's been a much better uh situation for michigan this year versus the last couple years you mentioned the culture there and what about the accountability from harbaugh himself because it's not every day at least for me that i see a head coach at a prominent program who does not have to necessarily take a pay cut kind of restructure things and say hey i'm accountable too that's that that's a totally different message to a college football player in 21 than it would have been even two three years ago yeah, I'd agree with that. Except, I mean, I think there was a little, there was very little market for Harbaugh too in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, given the fact that I think that this is his dream job, it's really what he's always wanted to do. His parents live in Ann Arbor, like not really next door practically, and uh, um, you know he grew up here, and uh, the program has, uh, you know deep, deep, deep meaning to it. So, I mean, this whole thing was always kind of his mission to kind of, I guess, probably restore Michigan to, like, what it was like when he played in the 80s. And so uh, I think that that was a huge motivator for him to, you know, kind of continue even if he had to take a pay cut and, you know, kind of bet on himself to see, you know, if he could approve it. Certainly, I would assume that his contract's going to be readjusted here very shortly. Let's talk about specifically Saturday because I I was not expecting it to necessarily be a close game, but that wasn't a competitive thing, really. Um, What was was your thought heading into the game? Um, And I I thought I would would struggle offensively, but but I didn't see that happening. No, I didn't see it to that degree. I mean, I thought that they would win pretty handily. Um, There's just a huge imbalance in the Big Ten between the East Division and the West. I mean, the East has been dominating the West for years. And it just it just continued. I mean, Ohio, whether it's Ohio State, you know, Michigan, Penn State, one year. I mean, they just constantly beat up on the West. And um, I've written about that consistently um, this season, just about the disparity between the two divisions. And uh, they might really have to reevaluate that because it's gotten pretty pretty bad um, in that sense. And so, um, you know, I wasn't like. You know that uh, taken aback by the score, just because once you know you realize that you know they really couldn't move the ball against uh, um, Michigan, and that you know they couldn't you know didn't have enough firepower to get in the end zone, then Michigan would just be able to implement its game plan and start kind of opening a little thing, a few things up offensively, and that would just you know set the set the game. Uh, and create the pathway to a blowout, basically. And so, you know, I wasn't totally surprised by the outcome. If I could ask you to peek ahead about three and a half weeks or so, um, tell me what you expect the offensive approach to be. I think I know this answer because I know Harbaugh a little bit, but uh, what do you expect the offensive approach to be against Georgia? I think they're going to just try to come out and just, you know, pound it with the, you know, and then also, um, you know, take a couple of deep shots to possibly, again, open up uh, the running lanes a little bit. Um, but, I mean, it's going to probably be the same thing that you've seen. 
uh, for Michigan all year because, I mean, if they deviate from the game plan now, I mean, um, you know, it, it's not going to necessarily uh, end well for them because, I mean, I think that this is really how they want to win games. The other thing that they have to do is score early. Well, uh, so in 2020, um, when they went two and four, and, you know, obviously Harbaugh's job was put in jeopardy, you know, they, they didn't score first in any of the six games that they played. And this year, they scored first in 12 of the 13 games. And that's huge for what their game strategy is, which is, again, to get up early and then, you know, protect the football and put the defense in a position where, you know, they're not having to deal with short fields at all um, and not in a position where they're compromised. And so I think those are going to be the keys to the game is just them trying to get up early, you know, even the coin toss could have a factor in in the game, actually, just based on if Michigan receives the ball first. Last thing, I want to know about the response of the Michigan fan base. Um, because, and I'm asking you, I know they're excited and they're going to travel everything else, but it's not cheap anymore. It's not even really affordable. Um, I had a buddy of mine heading to a semifinal game two years ago, and face value, and they were good seats, but the face value is $275. Plus all the travel, uh, do you expect Michigan to bring twenty thousand, fifty thousand, eighty thousand? What do you think it's going to look like? Oh, I think that. I mean, that's apparently, I saw a report in the uh, Ann Arbor paper um, that they um, uh, got twenty-eight thousand requests for the twelve thousand seats that they were allotted. So I would assume that they're going to travel pretty extensively. I mean, they, Michigan's got a national fan base and particularly have a lot of fans, I think, in the South Florida, a lot of alumni in the South Florida area. So I have a feeling they'll have a lot of people there, um, you know, uh, and certainly, um, you know, given the fact that this is their first college football playoff for us, I think, you know, they'll probably travel extensively for that. Well, I certainly appreciate the input today. Uh, It is going to be a tremendous matchup that I will raise my hand and say I didn't see coming. Uh, Rainer Saban, appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, again, uh, for the Detroit Free Press, covers Michigan, Michigan State, all of the Big Ten there. Did not see it coming. And it is a question. This is not, does not make you a bad fan if you don't have the money, if you can't afford it. Um, I couldn't afford my team's national championship game back in 2010. Right at the, I guess January of 11, couldn't afford it. I did the math, and I think that everybody, because that game was in Glendale, and I'll just use this as an example. The game was in Glendale, and the – trip out a lot of folks found the cheaper way was to go to vegas because you can't really the airlines can't bird dog vegas because vegas is full of i mean at capacity planes every day of the year whereas when the national championship game gets set oh it's in los angeles and it's with these two fan bases Okay, any airport within a six-hour drive flying to any airport within this. And so you jack up the price. You can't do that in Vegas. So a lot of folks are – even there, I worked it out every way possible, and it was going to cost me about $3,500 to go to a football game. And at that point, I just could not justify it. Now, I don't know if I could, quote, justify it today, but I could probably make it happen. But at that point, calendar, blah, 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 whatever. And I didn't just want to swipe the Amex and say, all right, now i got a $3,500 bill. Um, so if you can't afford it, it doesn't make you a bad fan. It makes you just a person. And a Georgia fan? 
I guess what he or she could do, I've done it before. I didn't want to. I was in Miami the day that, uh, if you don't remember this, about three, four years ago, the Atlanta airport around Christmas, power went out. And when I would say the power went out, it was like for a day and a half. Well, I was in the Miami airport waiting to get on a plane to fly home. And they're like, yeah, airport's closed. So I rented a car and drove 693 miles. Stopped at a uh, steak and shake in Ocala. Uh, Otherwise, straight home. 693 miles in the rental car. So um, I've made the drive, and it's not fun. But if my name is Alan, I'm married to Amy. We sell apples. I, you can pass the time somehow making the drive from from Michigan. Now, here's what I'll tell you. You leave Michigan, I don't think you turn. 75 South? Like, hey, it's Miami. So in your corner, you have ease. The other column, everything else. Gas three fifty a gallon. It's going to take you two and a half days. I mean, whatever it is. But what the Michigan fan has going for him or her versus the Georgia fan is you haven't been going to a lot of neutral site games to start the season. You haven't been going to a lot of conference championship games like any. You haven't been going to a lot of playoff games like any. And a Georgia fan, if you look at the the like, there's a chance. That Amex has been rubbed smooth. Okay? Like Stevie Wonder's going, wait a minute, what is this? This is an eight of hearts? So there is a chance that the Michigan fan has a little bit more of that income to spend. Always college football time in the South. Now back to more of the king of college football, Chuck Oliver, on Southern Sports Today. There occasionally is a totally different meaning uh, to what we're saying versus what we're saying. Um, You ask a question, but it's really a statement. Um, with the Cincinnati Bearcats, a lot of that's going on right now. Uh, it's people making statements, uh, and, and it's a little disrespectful. It's, okay, this is what you asked for. Um, in parenthesis, it's, you're about to get hammered. Now, there's a very real chance that could happen. They're playing Alabama. Stuff happens. Uh, but the Cincinnati Bearcats, 13-0, and and with the additional data point of a conference championship, the first group of five team, to get in the playoffs in the whatever eight years, seven years that we've had. I want to welcome on right now from ESPN Cincinnati, also the Athletic. It is Mo Egger. Mo, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great, Chuck. How are you? Doing all right. Let's just talk about Cincinnati and not level of competition or, you know, where they played or how they match up right now. I just want to know about this team because um, I know Jerome Ford, and that was from recruiting and then the transfer, and he's had a couple of really good seasons. Uh, We know Desmond Ritter because mostly from the season uh, last year. Uh, start with those two guys because they truly, I mean, we're talking about across the field as Alabama. One of them did play for Alabama, but both of them <laughs> literally could play for any team in America. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, the Jerome Ford piece, it's interesting. Cincinnati has always had quality running backs, Michael Warren, Jared Dokes, Mike Boone, guys like that, but they really haven't had a home run hitter. What have you seen from Jerome Ford? Go back to the Peach Bowl last year, the game against Georgia. Obviously, Cincinnati didn't win, but the moment that you thought they could was when Jerome broke 179 yards to the house, the exact same yardage total as what we saw on Saturday when, you know, Cincinnati early in that game was not stopping Houston offensively, and they fell behind 10-7. Jerome Ford takes 179 yards to the house. He's given them a home run hitter at running back. I think if you were to ask most Bearcat fans, they get a little frustrated by the ways in which they use him because it feels like every Jerome Ford run is just like right behind the center. They never run him wide. But uh, when when he gets to the second level, he's been gone, and he's done that a couple of times this year. As for Desmond Ritter, it's been really fun to watch his evolution because you know he 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 got into the game the first game of his redshirt freshman season. They're playing UCLA at the Rose Bowl. Cincinnati had been 4-8 and eight the year before, and I think the expectation, I remember going into 2018 thinking, okay, best case, this team is 6-6, six and six. they play in a bowl game, and it's sort of like the next step under year two under Luke Fickle. So they go to the Rose Bowl, they're playing UCLA, the quarterback they had at the time, Hayden Moore, gets hurt, Dez charges out onto the field, they won the game, but it felt like they won the game in spite of his lack of, of throwing ability. He ran. He ran well. Uh, he was elusive. And you thought, okay, well, if this is the quarterback the Bearcats are going to have, that's great. But what's going to have to happen when he makes when he has to make a throw? And as it's turned out over the last four years, he has progressed into a very good passer. His deep ball is, yeah. is, is almost perfect. Um, and, and he still has the ability to make you miss when he runs. But I don't think he's a run-first quarterback anymore. And I think he was his first two seasons and you know it was always far-fetched that he was going to be in a Heisman Trophy discussion but it was at least a little fun to look on the 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 odds boards of you know okay well what are the odds this guy wins the Heisman that sort of thing and to see Dez's name on there I think more than anything though he's he's also a real genuine leader and I know it can really sound cliche when we talk about quarterbacks and their leadership capabilities Dez is the real deal and he's one of the great winners in college football how many four-year starters have as many wins as De- how many four-year starters at quarterback are there in this yeah. day and age and how many of them have compiled the number of wins that Des has and I want to ask you about because quarterbacks that maybe Jim Pop is not really familiar with on a Saturday by Saturday basis when we look at you know Greg Ward I know you, I'm sure you remember him uh, sure. Greg Ward whomever a guy who doesn't he, well he's not a Sunday player he's not he won't go in the NFL draft somehow we affect a guy's NFL prospects we let that affect what we think of him as a college guy that doesn't apply to Desmond Ritter. He's NFL all the way. He is. And look, he's going to benefit. Let's be honest. He's going to benefit from the fact that this quarterback class in 2022 is not great, right? I mean, if, if, if this is the, you know, the, the Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Tua Tangavailoa class, yep. maybe we're not attaching the same amount of hype to Desmond Ritter. But yeah, I mean, look, is, is, he, is he going to step into a situation where he's going to start day one? No. Uh, but is, can, can, you, can you draft him? apply about a year of development and teaching to him and then feel pretty good about him as your starting quarterback? Absolutely. What, what I can tell you is this. Uh, he's going to work. He's, he's going he's gonna to do everything his coaching staff asks. He's driven to succeed. And, you know, watching him, I've seen every snap of his college career, watching him grow into the role, sometimes series to series, I think it's really fun to think about how that continues at the next level. You're right, though. I mean, Cincinnati has had success in college football 
before with guys like Tony Pike. He was the quarterback when they played in yeah. the Orange Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Zach Caleros took the reins from there. Guys had a long and successful career in the CFL. But what they haven't had is a true NFL QB. No, no matter how good they may have been in the past, they've never had a guy that you thought, as you said, this guy is going to play on Sundays. Desmond Ritter is going to play on Sundays. Uh, up front, the offensive line has been good, and and I'll say that's probably the worst part of the Cincinnati team is a good unit. Um, tell me about – give me your summary, first of all, because you watched them every single snap of the uh, Bearcats O-line this year and then the matchup with Bama. I think it's been a pleasant surprise because if, if we were talking about – you know, you mentioned this team doesn't have a lot of weaknesses. So as we're sort of going through the summer here, there were two questions. One, new defensive coordinator because Marcus Freeman yep. left for Notre Dame. And so how's that going to impact what they do defensively? And frankly, they were handing the new guy, Mike Tressel, the keys to a Ferrari because their they're defense, they have, they're just loaded with personnel. So the next question was going to be the offensive line. They lost their best offensive lineman from last year to the draft, James Hudson, who is the kid who got kicked out of the Peach Bowl for targeting, which you don't often see targeting an offensive lineman. But nonetheless, I think that was the big question. They were taking a guy in Lorenz Metz, who was the player who took over for James Hudson in that Peach Bowl and was badly exposed. They moved him inside, first-team all-conference player. I think the most important thing with this offensive line this season is – for the most part, they remain healthy. They've had to juggle things at center a little bit between Vinnie McConnell and uh, Jake Renfro. But aside from that, two years ago, uh, which was a very good year for this team, they won 11 games. In their first seven games, they had seven different offensive line combinations. They haven't had to do that this year. So I think they've benefited greatly from health and continuity. Let's be honest, though. Alabama's a different animal. We all know that. What I would say, though, is this. Aside from the one position last year, which would be left tackle when Hudson got hurt and Mets had to spell him. They held their own against Georgia. They held their own against a good Georgia defensive line. This is a different animal. The motivation for this game is entirely different. But relative to what the preseason expectations were for the offensive line, uh, what they've done this season has, I I think, marked a smashing success because there was so much uncertainty around that group. They've gotten really good at pass protection, and they're good enough at run blocking. Again, I I think most Bearcat fans wish the running game had a little bit more imagination to it, and I think some of that's based on the fact that at times the interior of that offensive line will get beaten up just a little bit, but by and large, this this unit has held up, I think, better than anybody ever would have imagined. All right. uh, What about slowing down Alabama's offense? Bryce Young and Williams and that whole bunch. Well, I think the one thing, if you're a Bearcat fan, you you go back to is the LSU game. Uh, And I haven't watched every snap of every Alabama game, but uh, you saw how they didn't run the ball effectively against LSU, and you thought, all right, if you're going to beat Cincinnati, which obviously nobody has, but the teams that have come close-ish, they have run the ball down Cincinnati's throat. The, The closest game they played this year was Tulsa, who they beat by eight points. Tulsa made that a game because they took their two big running backs and ran them right at UC. And the Bearcats had a hard time with that. Tulane, and I know we're not talking about college football powerhouses, Tulane made that game close-ish. Cincinnati won by 17, did the same thing, beat them at the point of attack, ran the ball at them. So I think if you're a Bearcat fan, you go, okay, well, first of all, this doesn't look like the most imposing Alabama team in terms of running the ball which plays to Cincinnati's strength on defense, which is their secondary. Ahmad Gardner is a first-round pick. Kobe Bryant is up for the Thorpe Award Best DB in college football. They've got a kid in Brian Cook who's going to play in the NFL next year at safety. Their slot corner, Arquan Bush, has come up with a lot of big and opportune plays this year. 
if there is a weakness, I think teams can attack him. For me, though, what it comes down to is the pass rush because this is not a team – and this goes back to Marcus Freeman coaching the defense. Marcus Freeman preached fundamentals and skill development, and then we're just going to line up and play. They don't do a lot of exotic things. They will occasionally send a corner after the quarterback, but they'll rush three. When they've gotten pressure with three, boy, this defense is really hard to beat. At times this year, though, their pass rush has been slowed down. The name to pay attention to is J Sanders for two reasons. Number one, probably leads all of college football in offsides. Number two, he is their best pass rusher. and Yeah, it kind of comes with it sometimes, a, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and he can he could be such a difference maker. If he's not applying pressure, as good as that secondary is against an offense like this, against a quarterback like this, you're, you're, you're begging for them to pick you apart. I think that's the most interesting thing about this game. Cincinnati's secondary is legit. I think it would hold up in, every, in any conference in college football, but you're playing Alabama. And so – how does that look? I think that's going to go a very long way toward determining uh, the outcome of this game. Last thing for you, and a real quick story. I used to be on Chick-fil-A Bowl selection committee, and we'd get our reports in every you know Monday night, and we'd meet. And we had one of our reps go to the BC game on a Saturday, and he said, it's a Saturday in November when BC can clinch their division. The game was on page 7 of the Boston <laughs> sports page. Uh, literally, the first made was Celtics. It was a Red Sox trade, it, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. Bengals eat it yesterday against the Chargers. Uh, where is the Bearcats? Where's their story? Is it consuming the city, or is it, damn it, what happened to the Cincinnati yesterday? <laughs> you know, it's, it, this is an interesting area because Cincinnati is in the shadow of Ohio State. So Cincinnati has a huge alumni base a big fan base, but it doesn't have a story tradition. I mean, I think whenever I talk with people who aren't from Cincinnati about the Bearcats, you try to you try to apply a little bit of context. This is a program that I'm old enough to remember when there was a faculty movement to get rid of it. Yes. I'm old enough to remember yeah. when there was a, an active discussion about moving to 1AA. And, and that, that was – I'm 44. All that stuff occurred in my lifetime. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when if you wanted basketball tickets to go see some of those great Bob Huggins teams, they forced you to buy football tickets. I'm old enough to remember when they, they didn't have a beat writer in the Cincinnati Enquirer that went to road games. So th- there's been a, a tremendous shift. But, but also there's, there's a lot of Ohio State fans here. There's a lot of Kentucky fans here. Uh, it's a big Catholic area, so there's a lot of Notre Dame fans here. So – Everybody loves the Bengals. Whether they want to admit it or not, everybody loves the Bengals. They're the NFL team. They're the common bond. But the success that Cincinnati is having, I can't find that many people who root for other schools who aren't enjoying the story. Maybe they're not Bearcat fans, but the rise of this program to an afterthought to somebody that could not be more mainstream and is playing in a bowl game that's going to affect the national championship picture. Again, I'm old enough to remember when they had to broker their way into the humanitarian bowl on the blue turf in Boise, and they gave Boise State a basketball game just to be invited to their first bowl game in 50 years. That occurred less than a quarter of a century ago. Would that so, have been an Antoine Peake game? That would have been uh, that would have been Jake Plummer and Deontay Kenner and Trent Cole. Um, Antoine Peake might have been on that team. All right. But, yeah, All right. there you go. Pretty good. So, to go from that to now, I think everybody's caught up in that because of the newness of it, of the excitement of it. But you're never not you're never going to knock the Bengals off the front page. But I would tell you from doing a three-hour show every single day, it's pretty close to 50-50, and it's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and that's what you, you you really love because this is going to be the season. I mean, literally half a century from now, there are going to be people walking past the trophy case with all the displays from the 2021 season in the lobby of the big, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be the season and it's happening right now. Mo, I appreciate you coming on, brother. Thank you. Anytime. You got it. Thank you. All right, Mo Egger again um, from The Athletic and um, ESPN Cincinnati. So uh, that's always – I wonder when you are not the mainstream – and they're not. Uh, you're not the mainstream, either giant state school or you're the, when I say local, I mean like the local college almost um, that is really ingrained in the community. And you don't really have a community in Cincinnati. You've got a giant American city. Like Winston-Salem, that's a community. Okay? Uh, Cincinnati's not. And it was the same sort of thing. It was the guy brought the uh, it was Boston Globe, I guess, came back with a sports page. And it was a Saturday, and it was like the second to last Saturday of the regular season. And BC was going to clinch the division. This was like, I don't know, like 2009 or something or whatever. So, and he's got it. He's like, page one, Celtics. Page two, Bruins. Page three, a Red Sox trade. Patriots, 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 Patriots. And then on page, it was seven. Hey, BC's got a game today. They seat 44,000 at a stadium that literally is in a neighborhood in the most congested part of Boston that exists, and there's four parking spaces. But there's a game if you really want to go. And so you just you hate to see this. I'm going to tell you a real quick story. A place called West Georgia University. It used to be West Georgia College. I think it's West Georgia University now. Um, you might have heard of a guy named Foots Walker. He played in the NBA for about a decade. Um, well, he played at West Georgia in the early 70s. And they won an NAIA national championship. You walk in their gym today, giant trophy case, nicest trophy case on campus. And it's got everything from, what, 47 years ago? And that's just one example of one basketball team from one, t- one school. It is exactly what every Tulane, you walk in their athletic department right now, there is something, was it 97 or 98 season they go undefeated? They're, they're, I'm telling you, it's a huge, huge deal. And you would hate for the city where the school is uh, for it to be sort of just a passing interest. And in a place like Cincinnati, I think that's what it's going to be. Chuck Oliver Show on Southern Sports Today. You know, people came in, we was the underdogs. People were saying we was going to get whipped, whooped, blew out, all this other stuff. Like, we Alabama, man. Like, hey, we ain't no D3 team. We ain't no none of that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we come to play and we practice hard just like they come to play and practice hard. And, you know, I'm not disrespecting Georgia. Georgia has a great football team. But, you know, sometimes we, we, we work hard, too, for what we want. Chuck Oliver show continuing on a Monday. That's Will Anderson. Young man from, he's down from the racetrack, isn't he? Hampton. Yeah, he's, he's from south uh, of Atlanta, uh, down near AMS, and he is a game wrecker, and he had his moments the other day. He did not redefine things, he did, but he was just, he had some guys stepping up their play to approach his level, and he was really, 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 really good. But that was Will Anderson after the game. 
And it's funny, like, who who in the crowd expected that, oh, yeah, we need to be reminded that Alabama has a lot of good players. We need to be reminded that Alabama works hard, which is what he said. You know what else? Alabama has some really good coaches. Georgia got the number one defense in football, and they did, and they still do, actually. Number one defense in football. Let's see, what would their average have gone up? How many points did they give up on Saturday? What was that final? 41? 41-24. All right, so 41 divided by 13. So their average went up about three points a game, if I did that correctly. Um, but it's still first in college football by a touchdown. I, even at that, do you know what I bet you? Because I said this last week, along with saying, and Georgia will win. I said, folks, if there is a chance, if, if, if we're dividing up, Chuck, there's 15 factors that are going to decide the game. I'm going to let you pick the first two you want. I'm saying, give me the coach and the quarterback. And I got it. Um, but Alabama's coaches, you know, part of what they were working with, and I've talked about the offensive line and Doug Marone, that's what an NFL staff does every single week. Throw out the old thing. All right, what do we got this week? Um, but flip it around to defense. Can you imagine being Pete Golding or somebody on that defensive staff and all week all you heard was, oh, the Georgia defense. You're looking around. Do you know Alabama had the seventh highest rated defense in college football? Seventh ranked defense out of 130 going into Saturday's game. I didn't hear a word about them. Not even enough on this show. So it's not like I'm sitting here calling out everybody else. I was in gin pop. I was looking at the Georgia Bulldogs going, yes, they're unbeatable. Yes, that's true. I agree. Those aren't the droids you're after. Um, That's literally what it was like. And then Bama went out there and let's see, what did Bama do? They played really well on the offensive line. They made big plays on defense. They were good in the kicking game. They had a great plan coming in coaching-wise. Hmm, who's that sound? Alabama. It sounds like Alabama. Dan, what's up? Oh, not much. You know, I mean, and the funny thing is, is if you listen to some Alabama fans, now I get it. We try to learn that Twitter is not real life, but you would think that Bill O'Brien and Pete Golding are two of the worst human beings on the planet that have done absolutely nothing right in the tenure of their career at Alabama, much less before they came to Alabama, but both just absolute pitch great games on Saturday against uh, Georgia. Uh, Let's enter the world of dysfunction here to close us out here on a Monday. And I'm not going to get angry because I'm not going to fall for the bait of let's all get outraged like we saw last week with Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly. You closed out Friday's show, I think, perfectly about Brian Kelly. Nobody died. In this case, though, I think that this is a lesson in don't be dysfunctional. And I'm looking at you, Miami, because we got the report yesterday from Ross Dellinger. Great reporter. I do not deny his reporting because he's been outstanding that they were going to offer Mario Cristobal. Should Mario Cristobal say no? Hey, Manny, you still want to be our football coach of this team? Which I'm thinking, how the hell can you step back into that locker room when it's very well known they don't want you there long term? You're there until they find a reason to be able to get rid of you. And then on top of it, it gets even better because about an hour before ending the show today, Chuck, 
there was a report from Ross that not only was Mario going to take the job, Dan Radakovich was going to talk with him first, then he was going to decide if he wants the AD job. Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Yeah, that's weirdness, man. Hey, uh, welcome. We would like to offer you the job of athletic director, and here is your new football coach that we hired yesterday. Wait a minute. You're hiring me to do what? Direct athletics. Could you held off for 24 hours then? The single biggest thing I'm going to do is AD, and you took care of it a day before I got to town. Wraps it up on a Monday, folks. Appreciate y'all getting in. Be back this time tomorrow with more College Football Conversation.